Today's scripture reading is Ruth 3, 9 through 13, and 4, 1 through 10. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Have you made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men? whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took two, ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, then I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was common in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So the, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnessing this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Limlech and all that belonged to Kilian and Maon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, had bought to my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> I'd like to introduce myself. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Gray, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here and would love to meet you after the service if we haven't done so. Uh, but we're so glad to have you today. It's a special day for Fall Fest, um, and so hopefully you'll join us back again later tonight. But we're going to continue. We have two more weeks in this series in the book of Ruth, a great uh, love story, a story of God's redemption, 
And um, we're going to be looking today at this passage where uh, Boaz redeems Ruth and what that means uh, for us. First, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help in prayer. Our great Father, we thank you again that you have revealed yourself to us. You have spoken. You have shown us yourself. And not just in straightforward ways, but even through stories and narratives of redemption, real life stories of love and loss. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ. It's him that we cling to this morning. It's him that we know to be our redeemer. You are our redeemer. So I pray that your name would be exalted. The name of Christ would be held high that we would find our place and our life in you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, part of the early uh, education of my life in finances came when I was about eight or nine years old, and I had this experience in a grocery store in Mobile, Alabama. I only mention that because I know there's some folks from from Mobile uh, here this morning, but I was in Mobile, Alabama. I was eight or nine years old. And um, I have this story, it's one of my earliest memories, um, and it, it clicked something uh, for me about finances and about, you know, what, what things cost and, and how to think about money. So here's a story. Uh, we were going on vacation uh, to the Gulf Coast, and we always stopped uh, every year in Mobile at this grocery store to, to buy groceries to fill up uh, for our week at the beach. And I was walking down the aisle with my sister, and I heard this couple and they were fighting, they were bickering over what to buy. And here's how the, the conversation unfolded. So the wife was holding a can of beans, a large can of beans, and she said, I'm going to buy these beans. And the husband said, don't get those. And the wife said, but I have a coupon for $2 off these beans. But the husband said, getting more frustrated, but I don't like those kind of beans. And the wife said, and this is the part that stuck with me forever, well, I don't like them either, but I want to save that $2. (laughs) I'm going to refrain um, this morning from talking about the dangers of couponing, uh, though it is a subject that I feel strongly about. Um, I don't like them either, but I want to save those $2. Now, that statement either doesn't make sense or it's extremely sad, right? That those are really the only two options. It either doesn't make sense. Obviously, um, you all laughed, so maybe you get the joke. She's going to pay for the beans no matter what. So if she doesn't like them, she's not really saving money. She's going to spend money to get the beans anyway. Now, maybe she would spend less than she would have, but she's still spending money. So she's not saving It either doesn't make sense or it's sad. Perhaps it's uh, that they had such limited money that they were forced to buy the things that they they could get at the cheapest amount. But I actually don't think that. They didn't seem like they were uh, in in a bad way in any kind of way. Um, I think it was probably more of the first. Like she was volunteering to do this thing, to buy these beans, even though she didn't like them, she was choosing to redeem the coupon. Isn't it interesting that when we talk about coupons, we use that language of redemption. I'm going to redeem these 
coupons. I think it was probably in her nature to be a saver, to be a redeemer of coupons. But in this case, she wasn't willing or an eager redeemer. She was a reluctant redeemer. She held her nose. She said, I need to redeem this. And I wonder, as we come to this passage in Ruth today, if we have perhaps a mistaken view of who God is as the Redeemer. Perhaps we think that it's in, only in God's nature to save, to redeem. In other words, that He had to save, that He was forced to do it, that He looked at us, these filthy, unwashed sinners, and He held His nose and He redeemed us. Though we were no more than the can of beans was to the woman, that uh, she did not desire them at all, God did not desire us at all, but He had to save because it was in His nature to save. I wonder if we think that way. But the Bible gives us a different picture of our Redeemer. It is true that we are sinners. It is true that it is costly to redeem us. But it is not true that God is unwilling to do so or compelled only by His nature. And through Boaz, the Redeemer here, God shows us that He is a different kind of Redeemer. He is a relational Redeemer. He is an eager Redeemer. And He is an able Redeemer. So those two things I want to look at today, the eager and able Redeemer. Through Boaz, seeing God's character. First, an eager Redeemer. Boaz is an eager redeemer. Now, first of all, what is a redeemer? We've used that word um, a number of times in this series, but let's talk about what it is. This is what Ruth says in verse 9. She identifies Boaz as a redeemer. Verse 9, she says this, and she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The word there, goel, um, is all throughout the book of Ruth. And it means a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. That is, a close relative whose responsibility it was. We're going to talk about how much of a responsibility it was in just a second. But let's just say in a broad sense, there was a responsibility for these widows. And the redemption part is acquiring the debt or the obligation for someone else's life or freedom. That's redemption. Acquiring the debt or obligation for someone else's life or freedom. So, she implies, you are a redeemer. There's, an, at least in some sense, a social responsibility. Not an obligation, we're going to see in just a moment, but a responsibility. Now, how does the redeemer feel about this responsibility? Yes! All right? He's here for it. I mean, did you see how excited he, he is? Um, look at verse 10 with me. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He is here for it. Once Boaz got over the shock of seeing the woman at his feet on the threshing floor, all right, that scared him to death. But uh, once he got over the shock, he is excited. He is flattered, even, we could say. He is eager. Now, I, I made reference to this, but we need to see that Boaz 
does not have an absolute legal obligation to marry Ruth. This is somewhat confusing as you read this because it seems like at times they're electing to do this and at other times it seems like there's some kind of responsibility. Well, what's in the background of this is a passage in Deuteronomy 25 that talks about the concept of the Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage is part of the Deuteronomic covenant of God, the law of God. And in that law, if you read Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, you will see that God commands that if, if brothers are living together, so you have your brothers, your family living close by, and a brother dies, then another brother is to marry his wife and through her have children in the name of the brother who died. And now this seems like a strange concept to us. This was for both the protection of the widow and for the protection of the line, these, the, the, the name that would be passed down. And this was very important in this cultural moment. Now, when we look at our passage today, does this apply? Is, is, does, does Boaz have to follow Deuteronomy 25 and marry Ruth? Well, no, for a couple of different reasons. First, Boaz is, is not the brother of either Elimelech, uh, Ruth's uh, father-in-law, or, nor is he the brother of Machlon, who is Ruth's former husband. So he's not the brother, so the, the law wouldn't apply there. And besides that, uh, even if he was the brother of Elimelech, he would not be obligated to marry Ruth, but he'd be married, obligated to marry Naomi, her mother-in-law. So, there is no strict law here, but there, there, is, there does seem to be a culture that has grown up around this law where close relatives would care for their families, and that surely is a beautiful part about the law of God. Boaz is not obligated, but he is excited. As we saw in verse 10, he says it is a kindness. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And then he goes on to praise Ruth for not going after uh, just young men, uh, whether poor or rich. He goes on to call her a worthy woman. So it must be either the case that Boaz is being modest um, about his own prospects or that Ruth is a real catch um, or both on some level. He certainly implies here that she has youth and beauty. I don't think that that necessarily means that he is old and ugly. Um, he could be being modest. But there is an age difference here. It's probably less than you think. After all, uh, Boaz is not so old that he's not out working in the fields every single day with his workers. And Ruth is not so young as to not have been married to someone else for up to 10 years at this point. So, there is a difference, probably scholars think, of around 10 years or so. Boaz is not under obligation, but he does have desire. The same is true of Ruth. She is not under obligation. Boaz says as much. Look at verse 11. Uh, sorry, verse, the end of verse 10. <clears throat> you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Boaz acknowledges that Ruth has options. She is a free agent. 
Even Ruth seems to know this as she, she talks to, to Boaz earlier in the book. If you remember, Naomi, her mother-in-law, says that Boaz is our Redeemer. She, she identifies him as the next in line. But by the time in this chapter, Ruth says, you are a Redeemer. So Ruth already anticipates probably what Boaz is going to say next, that I'm not first in line. She is coming to him before she comes to the one who is the first in line as a Redeemer. Both of them could have chosen a different path. Boaz is eager as a redeemer, not just because of her youth and beauty, but also because of her nobility. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Another way we could translate that is a strong woman. You are a woman of strength. He acknowledges that this is a well-known fact in the gate, in the town, which is significant because they've only been there upwards of eight weeks, and already Ruth is known in the town. So, Boaz is beyond willing. He is even eager to redeem. But there is still a question. Can he? Is he able to redeem Ruth? Because there is someone else in line first. Look at verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Is Boaz going to be able to redeem Ruth? That's the question that we're left with at the end of that chapter as he goes off to the town. Well, Boaz goes to court. Uh, he goes to the gate, and it's a rather simple affair to get this settled. He rounds up 10 guys, uh, and they judge the matter right then and there. It makes me uh, jealous for that judicial system. I just recently got a summons for jury duty. Um, and it was stressful even figuring out how to respond to it, right? It was like months in advance. Um, seemed like it could be a lot simpler. Just go in and, and grab some folks and make a judgment. But that's, that's the court um, that, that they have in Israel at the time. And he, so he, he rounds up those people. And the first step is he rounds up this unnamed redeemer. So now we're in chapter 4. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So the first thing you need to see is that this, this redeemer is an unnamed redeemer. Boaz actually calls him friend here. Turn aside, friend, and sit here. Now, that's actually significant. Um, you'll see why in just a minute. But he calls him here, it's, it's a double word, poloni alimony. Um, turn aside, poloni alimony. Sounds like an Italian guy just showed up in, in Israel, right? Um, but that rhyming word that's translated here, friend, is actually significant uh, for, for, the, for the English nerds in the room. Um, that, that construction, which is common in our language too, is, is called a farrago. Okay, you're learning something today maybe. Um, it's, it's where you have a rhyming word that stands for uh, an unnamed thing, kind of like hodgepodge or mishmash 
or something like that. And so this word is significant because the narrator is keeping this redeemer anonymous. And it's kind of a rhyming way to say that. We might say Joe Schmo, right? This is Joe Schmo redeemer. Um, Boaz then grabs, I'm going to tell you why that's significant in just a moment. Boaz grabs 10 elders and he talks about the tract of land that is in question here. Here's what he says in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So we find out here for the first time that there is land involved. There's a parcel of land. Boaz grabs these elders. He describes this land uh, that needs to be redeemed. Apparently, there's some family land here. And if you know anything about the story of Israel, you know that Israel, Israel received land from God Himself. The 12 tribes of Israel, God gave certain tracts of land. And so it's not an easy thing to just sell land. It stays within the family. And so it's hard to know the details of what's happened here, but likely this land, whatever it is, has fallen out of use, and Ruth and Naomi are not able to, to keep it up. And since uh, the sons of Elimelech, Mahlon and Chilion, are, are dead... Um, then, then they're not able to redeem it. And sorry, ladies, this, there is no property uh, name for women at this time. So what's going to happen to this land? Probably what has happened already is that Elimelech, the father-in-law, sold the use of the land before he left. Almost certainly before they left, Elimelech, desperate, remember it's fam- the famine was in the land, he moved to Moab, That's how this whole story got started. He probably sold the use of that land. Now, the use of the land is different than the the name on the land. The the family still owns the land, but he probably sold it to someone to use it. So when they're talking about who will redeem this land, most likely what they're saying is, who's going to pay the price to buy it back from whoever is using it? Joe Schmo, Redeemer. Smells profit potential. Who doesn't want more land? I want more land. This seems like a good idea. So he says, I will redeem it. And then Boaz hits him with the left hook. But wait, there's more. This is a package deal. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the land of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz says, the day that you get the land, you also get Ruth the Moabite. Now, Again, are we talking about strict legality? Probably not. Is he required, this Redeemer, to marry this woman? Probably not. I think Boaz is probably relying on social convention, 
on all the, the, the pressure around this environment. Perhaps that's even why he gathered ten witnesses, way more than he needs, to make this a legal transaction. Perhaps there's lots of witnesses there to make sure that there's plenty of social pressure to take on the ladies as part of the deal. So Joe Schmo or so-and-so redeemer says, I cannot redeem. I am not able to redeem. Interestingly, the way the sentence there is, it emphasizes for myself. For myself. He says, I'm not, I'm not able to because it will not benefit me. Of course, this was never about him in the first place. This was about the care of these widows and the perpetuation of the name of Elimelech. It's not about you. What happened? What happened in that little interaction where he says, I will redeem it, and then he says, I cannot redeem it. What happened is, is he did the math. He did the math. And all of that math added up to a discount on a can of beans that he did not like. And the redemption was no longer worth it. It's nice to have the discount, but at what cost? Let's see here. I've got to buy the land. I've got to redeem it back to whoever's using it. Then there's room and board for Ruth. Uh, first thing she's going to do when she's my wife is ask me to take care of her mother-in-law. Um, so that's another mouth to feed. She's young. She can have children. What if she has a child? What if she has multiple children? That's more mouths to feed. I've got to maintain the property. Then one, if one of those children that's born is, is a son, then when he is of age, then the land will go to him. And, and all the work and all the things that I've put in will not go back to my children. That's what he means by my inheritance. I can't endanger my inheritance. He's doing some math. Perhaps he's doing some relational math as well. Ruth, you notice when Boaz talks about her, emphasizes the fact that she is a Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. She's beautiful. She's got a good reputation. We've already established that. But that whole being from the land of Moab thing perhaps was also part of his math. Perhaps not everyone in his family would appreciate someone from the land of Moab being there. We've already established how bad the reputation of Moab is. A godless place, uh, often involved in Israel's history in negative ways throughout the Scripture. This is not adding up. It's not worth the cost. And from a human understand, standpoint, you get it, don't you? You get that. I get that. Why would he do something so costly when the math does not add up and he has no legal obligation to do so? It's a good question. Here's a better question. How then is Boaz able to come up with different math? Wouldn't it be the same math for him? 
Wouldn't he have the same cost of redemption, the same cost of feeding, the same social cost, perhaps, of marrying Ruth? Wouldn't he have the same risks, the same possible rewards, the same cost? The math is the same. Why is it different for Boaz? Love makes the difference. Love changes the math. Love changes the math. He loves Ruth. Now, we don't know actually if that's more of an affectionate love at this point or a commitment to the family type love. By the way, both are important in love. When you love someone, there's always affection and commitment. Those two things go together. Perhaps he is driven by his desire for Ruth and his love for her as a person. He seems certainly to be smitten with her, but certainly he feels an obligation to the family. And so he loves her and he shows that love in commitment. And that changes the math. Love changes the math. We know that this is a true concept. Perhaps you have an object in your house that is not worth very much. Maybe you have a wooden spoon. uh, And what's a wooden spoon worth? Maybe it's worth $2, $3. I'm not sure. But what if it was your grandmother's wooden spoon? And she gave it to you. Then that, that changes the math. It's not $3 anymore. It's something that is priceless to you. What's a napkin worth? A napkin's not worth anything less than a cent. But what if it was the napkin that was set at the place setting of Elvis Presley? And the, the, the value of it goes way up, not because the, the napkin has changed, but because someone who loves Elvis Presley is willing to pay for that. Love changes the math of relationships. That is why he is an eager an able redeemer. And through this, we see our own redemption. God is an eager and able redeemer. And he has loved us. He has set his love on us. And that changes the math, the costliness of what it costs to purchase us back into the family of God is a price that he's willing to pay, not holding his nose, not devaluing us as if we were something he didn't want, but something that he is eager and able to redeem. I want to, as we close today, apply this in a couple of different ways. And the first way is this. Do not look for redemption in things or people who do not love you. In other words, don't put your trust in Joe Schmo Redeemer. So-and-so Redeemer. This nameless fill-in-the-blank that could have redeemed, but didn't. And there are all kinds of people that you are in relationship with who do not love you. Your financial advisor doesn't love you. Your political party, it may appreciate your donations, but it does not love you. Leaders in various places do not love you. Online clubs, social circles, affiliations, all the things that we put stocks of our identity into are full of things that desire things from us, maybe are willing to do things for us, but do not love us. Even our family and dear friends who do love us, they themselves have limits. There is a point at which the cost will be too much. And so redemption can only be found in the one who is willing to pay the full cost. 
the cost of the sin of the world on his shoulders, the cost of, of saying to his father, why have you forsaken me? The cost that Jesus was willing to take, not holding his nose, but out of a desire and joy for his people. Hebrews 2, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the pains of the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? It was our redemption. It was purchasing back his beautiful bride for himself, his eager desire. The good news is that Christ died for the ungodly, but not just because it's in his nature to save, but because he is eager to do so. He laid down his life willingly. God does not hold his nose to pay the cost of redemption. He joyfully pays it out of love. So don't give yourself to anything but him because nothing else has that kind of love for you. The second way that we'll apply it is this. Take the math out of your relationship with God. Take the math out. Do you remember the circular logic of God's love for Israel? Deuteronomy chapter 7. It is circular logic. Why does God love Israel? The people of Israel, he calls in Deuteronomy 7, my treasured possession. Beautiful. Why? Well, he says, it wasn't because you were great. You were the fewest of all peoples. You didn't bring anything to this relationship. So then why does he love them? Because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. Because I set my love on you. That affection and that commitment from God. God loves us because he loves us. Not because we are great. Not because we offer him something. He loves us because he loves us. We are made by Him. We are redeemed by Him. We are His. And that means two things. First, you no longer need to earn what you already have. You do not need to perform or bargain with God to be able to get His affection or attention on your life. The math is gone. You don't have to say, give me this and I'll do this for you. Because you already have everything. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are already yours. The place at the table is already yours. If you're in Christ Jesus, God has set His love on you and He expects nothing from you in order to establish that relationship. We need to see our value. You remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 when Jesus is saying, look at the birds. And He says, Think about it. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Part of the lesson that when we look around and we see the world is to say, that's that's beautiful, that's of great value, but God loves me more than that. And not because I contribute anything and not because I have somehow earned it. It is His gift. You no longer need to earn what you already have. And number two, You need to give yourself fully to him with no math. When Boaz redeems Ruth, what is her only response? What is the only thing she could do? 
I'm yours. You have redeemed me. She comes as a willing bride to love and be loved by Boaz. And in the same way, we have to turn and put away the bargaining from our direction too and say, the most valuable thing is that God has redeemed me. Remember the treasure in the field in Matthew chapter 13, the parable, the very short two-verse parable that Jesus tells where he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Somebody finds it, they stumble over it, and they sell everything they have to obtain it. Do you remember why? For the joy. For the joy at finding it. They sell everything they have to obtain it. So for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the pains of the cross. And for the joy set before us, we give everything away to follow Jesus Christ. Because in that redemption, we have life. And so we take the math out. We don't say, I've been praying, so why are you leading me into a season of hardship? We don't say, I, I've, I've given, I, I gave of my money, or I gave of my time, or something, and, and now you're bringing suffering, and this is not okay with me. We drop the math out. Because for the one who gave everything for us, we give everything to him. It's no longer an equation. It is a relationship. When we take the math out, we joyfully give. But we also joyfully receive. And that comes first. We love because he first loved us. He redeemed us. So we give our whole life to him. Don't look for redemption in things or people who do not love you. And take, your, take the math out of your relationship with God. Because we have an eager and an able redeemer. Let's pray.